Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. I want to make you aware that we'll be in Luke 18 today. So if you will, turn with me to Luke 18. I'll begin reading in verse 9. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 27. As you know, Reformation Day is Tuesday. So this is a sermon that's out of Genesis. We're not in that book this week because we are celebrating Reformation Day, if you will, and returning to that gospel. And so I want to look with you at Luke 18, starting in verse 9, going through verse 27. He, that being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearing, that your spirit would cause your church to hear what is being said to us that we would understand what it is that Jesus is teaching his people in this parable, 
and in these two scenes with the infants and the rich young ruler. What it is that Luke is doing as the Spirit superintended the writing of this gospel, not only for the audience of his day, but for your church in every age. Cause us to rejoice in the grace of God that is so clearly being demonstrated here to helpless sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, many in the church, as I said, are celebrating Reformation Day. As Protestants, we believe that the relative darkness of the medieval church was dispersed by the bursting forth of gospel light. Gospel light that came from the mouth and pen of men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, to name just two. And I want to tie this Reformation to our baptisms today. Baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel. It visibly pictures God's gospel promises and visibly guarantees that God is good for his word. So if baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel, then getting the gospel wrong means you're going to get baptism wrong. And Rome got the gospel wrong. In fact, there were at least two major streams of thought about the gospel in the medieval church. There's more, but let's just deal with two major ones. And I just want to give you a really rough summary. There's the Franciscan teaching that is represented by a man named Gabriel Beale. Here's what he said to the one who does what is in him. God denies not grace. To the one who does what is in him, God denies not grace. There was also the Dominican teaching that God graciously gives you what you need in the sacraments, but you have to do your part. In seeing the gospel in this manner, they turn the sacraments into a legal path to salvation, wherein God's grace enables you to do your part. And so the Reformed had to take great pains to clean up the mess with regard to gospel preaching and these sacraments that Christ has given to the church. Christ gave the sacraments to the church as visible words, visible words of the inward grace offered in the gospel. Perhaps in our own American evangelical day, we need a new reformation. We have shrouded the gospel light under the darkness of idolatrous notions of human ability. See, the Reformed took that idol and they cast it on the dung heap of history. That idol of doing what is in you, of doing your part, of human ability being what we rely on, and they cast it on the dunghill of history. And somewhere along the line, American evangelicals climbed that dung heap and dug that idol out and bowed down and worshipped it. We have turned the gospel into a kind of weak law. And we've turned faith into a kind of good work. You know, the Old Testament set salvation impossibly high. The bar was impossibly high. That's what the Old Testament did. So Jesus lowered that bar to keeping one simple command, to believe. We've turned faith into a kind of work that God rewards, 
a work in which we are the principal cause. We are the effective agent. The reformers rightly taught that faith is the instrumental cause of justification. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you just saw an instrument being played. Saw three instruments, if you will, being played. The instrument is being strummed. The guitar is up here being strummed by the musician. And the guitar is then, if you will, making music. But it isn't actually the guitar that is the effective power, if you will, that makes the music. It isn't the guitar that's the principal cause of the music being made. It is the musician using that instrument to make the music. And what I'm trying to get at here is God is the effectual agent or the principal cause in your salvation. God is that. Your faith is merely the instrument through which God's grace is received. When we say that you're justified by faith alone, we do not mean that faith is some virtuous thing that justifies you. We mean that Christ justifies you through faith. Christ is your justification. Your faith is not your justification. Your faith is the instrument through which Christ, who is your justification, is given to you, received by you. But in our day, the American Christian has become the effective agent, the principal cause of his own salvation. We seem to believe that God offers us grace, but that we activate that grace with the power of our own faith. Rather than believing God when he says to us, apart from me, you can do nothing, we hear God's gospel offer and respond to him, apart from me, you can do nothing. We've made the entire Trinitarian work of salvation hinge upon our own goodwill. The Father's eternal decree to save us in his Son, the Son's incarnate and mediatorial work to purchase grace for us, the Holy Spirit's being sent by the Father and the Son to apply that grace to us, all of it is impotent apart from the powerful faith of the sovereign self. That's how we see it. This whole system has lost sight of the fact that faith is itself a gift of God's grace through which we receive and rest upon Christ, our justification. It is this American gospel, which really is no gospel at all, that is likely behind our perversion of the sacraments. When I say our perversion of the sacraments, what I mean is this. We've turned baptism, largely in the evangelical world, we've turned baptism and the Lord's Supper primarily into signs of our faith toward God. The sacraments have become like tokens of our love for him. They've become man-centered ordinances by which we are giving God and his church visible signs of our word. Baptism has become no more than a wet profession of faith. And the Lord's Supper is treated like an edible rededication. And so as we approach baptism this morning, I want to consider first the gospel of God's grace to helpless sinners. And second, I want to draw out, if you will, five uses for baptism. Only one of those five uses will the Baptists in the room disagree with, just to be clear. So the gospel of God's grace to helpless sinner, and then draw out five lessons. So let me say that. The gospel of God's grace to helpless sinners, that's what we want to look at first. 
Now, I want you to notice that Luke, in Luke 18, 9 through 27, is going to present you with one parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and then two stories that are communicating to you the nature of God's grace and the utter helplessness that we have to save ourselves. So let's consider the parable first. Look with me at Luke 18, verse 9. What we'll does read 9 through 12 and note the contrast that Jesus is teaching here. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So you hear who the parable is being told to? People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You wonder if the Pharisee is going to stop at this point and say, okay, Lord, now I'm going to wait for you to thank me. Look at what an amazing guy I am. Goes on. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, that being the tax collector. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the contrast that Jesus is teaching here. The Pharisee is a good man in the eyes of society. Externally, he keeps the law and the traditions. He professes faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's a child of the covenant, descended from the patriarchs. To him belong the law and the prophets and the promised Messiah. He is righteous, or at least he and others consider him righteous. And then you get to Luke 18, 13 with the tax collector. The tax collector is the dregs of society. He has turned on his own people to enrich himself by assisting their oppressor. You imagine a foreign nation oppresses you, and then you buy the right to take money from the people so that you can help the foreign nation oppress your own people. You understand how you might see that kind of guy? He is unrighteous, and he and others know it. And the prayers between these two are so dramatically different. One man celebrates his own faith and good works in his prayers. The other humbly looks down, beats his breast, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus gives us verdict between these two. The tax collector is justified. The Pharisee is not. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Now we could wrongly turn this passage into a parable about the virtue of humility. Do you see how that might come? Okay, just gin up enough humility. The virtue of the humility and of the tax collector, and we can congratulate him for his humble faith. But that would be missing the point. The point is really not humble faith is an offering that merits you favor with God. The point is that God graciously and mercifully saves helpless sinners. 
Friends, one of the primary reasons that the first fruit of a true and lively faith is repentance is because when God opens your eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, when you see the superabounding grace of God in Christ against the backdrop of his terrifying holiness and your own sin, then you finally see yourself as you truly are and as you are and you hate your sins and you repent. When you see the truth of who God is and who you are, you repent in dust and ashes. You declare, woe is me, for I'm done. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And you cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ, knowing that he is your only hope of salvation. And you declare, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And we see the contrast played out in the next two stories. The same contrast is played out in the next two stories. And as we consider these next two stories, I do want you to recognize something that a lot of people don't pay much attention to, but we ought to. This story about bringing the infants to Jesus, followed by the rich young ruler story, are told together. These two stories are told together in every single one of the synoptic gospels. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these two stories are told together. So let's consider the first one. Look at Luke 18, 15. Now they were bringing, they being these disciples of Jesus, not the 12, but those people around who were believing in him and trusting in him, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Now, Mark and Matthew both give us some more color on this. The touching of them isn't just touch my infant. It's they wanted Jesus to bless them. So they're bringing the infants to bless them. Brephe, this is an infant. An infant. They're bringing infants to him so that he might bless them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The disciples actually become quite agitated. What does he have to do with these infants? But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In fact, we're told in both Mark, we're told in Mark that he becomes quite angry with the disciples, but Matthew and Mark both tell us that these parents are bringing their infants to Jesus so he'd lay his hands on them and bless them. The parents are trusting in Jesus. They want his blessing on their children and the disciples rebuke them for coming to him for this. The disciples seem to take the posture of, what does Jesus have to do with blessing your infants? He's busy with more important matters. But Jesus became indignant, Mark tells us, deeply angry at the behavior of his disciples. They were missing something so important to the heart of God. They did not understand their Lord. Sovereign grace. Here is God standing incarnate before his people. You're saying, do you want to know what God is like? He is most clearly revealed to us in the person of his son. Here he is standing incarnate before his people. And what do we learn about how the Lord sees your children? Please hear this. We know how God sees your children. The Lord created us male and female and gave us the covenant of marriage, Malachi tells us, so that he might have godly offspring. 
We mangled that with our sin and rebellion. And in every biblical covenant, we see that grace is being promised in Christ to restore what we have destroyed. For God is covenanting with households, with believers and their children. Across every biblical covenant, God promises to be God to us and to our children after us. Now listen, the promise is so secure that even if one spouse is an unbeliever, that does not threaten the covenant status of the child. As Paul says, the child of even one believing parent is holy. Now what does he mean? He doesn't mean internally holy that they are believers. He means that they are set apart from the world as part of God's covenant people. And as our covenant God stood incarnate before his disciples, these parents and their infants, they did that, they saw and heard how God sees their children. Look at verse 16 again. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Please do not keep your infants from the Lord Jesus and his blessing. Mark tells us that Jesus blessed these infants. He held them in his hands and he blessed them. Now we see Jesus bless people twice in the gospels. That's it. He gives two blessings in the gospels. The apostles at his ascension at the end of the book of Luke and these infants here in this scene. Given he is the great high priest, I assume these parents heard Jesus say to their children, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. To these helpless infants belongs the kingdom of God and the blessings of Christ our mediator. Now Luke wants us to learn the gospel lesson from this. There's a gospel lesson here, so look at verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now how do these infants receive the kingdom of God? Do they have infant faith? Likely not. Maybe. What's the point Jesus is driving at? The point he's driving at is that they are utterly helpless. And the Lord graciously gives them the kingdom of God. And that is the only way to receive the kingdom of God. As a helpless sinner to whom God is gracious. And every gospel writer wants you to see this. And thus they put that story right before the story of the rich young ruler. Do you catch it? The only way you receive the kingdom of God is as a helpless sinner to whom God has been gracious. Like an infant, you're helpless. That's the story before the story of the rich young ruler. That's not unintentional. That's superintended by the Spirit for a reason. So let's consider that. Look at Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's how the Greek is here. Having done what, will I inherit eternal life? You hear the emphasis? Having done what, will I inherit eternal life? Now look what Jesus goes on to say. And Jesus said to him, verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. 
do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He starts with the second table of the law and says, if you want to inherit eternal life by law keeping, then keep it all. Do it all. Remarkably and somewhat insanely, the rich young ruler says, I have. I've kept all those from the time I was young. So because Jesus loved him, Jesus exposed his heart and demonstrated his inability to merit eternal life through his own law-keeping. So Jesus takes him to the first table of the law. Now that might not seem readily apparent to you at first, but let's put this in context. Here's the second table. I've done that. Let's go to the first table. Give up everything you have. Sell it all and give the proceeds to the poor. In other words, as Jesus has said more than once, you cannot serve both God and money. You shall not have any other gods before me. And what's the young ruler's response to this? Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, he could not save himself. And his heart was hardened by the idolatrous love of money. Thus, he did not repent. Rather, he became sad and walked away, for he knew that he had another God that he loved more. A God that he believed delivered him what he most loved in this life. Wealth, good standing. Now the disciples knew that this was an upstanding man in the community. They knew that. He was a good man with considerable means, a man who clearly seemed blessed by God. And so they're left with a question. So look there at verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? You hear that? If this good man, whom God has clearly blessed, can't be saved, then who can be saved? Answer, no one. No one. No one can be saved if we must merit it through our own good works. No, not even one. Phil Riken told a story about the evangelist John Wesley. John Wesley went to see the estate of a wealthy man. And when he went to see the estate of the wealthy man, the man took him on horseback around his property for the whole of the day. They just went and surveyed this man's property. And they came back to the house, and the man told Wesley, you know, that was just a portion of my property. Horseback all day, you saw just a portion of my property. And then he asked Wesley, well, what do you think? Wesley replied, I think you'll have a hard time leaving all this. Friends, look at your own heart. Do you really love God above all else? 
Are you able to walk away from the world and its loves and keep the law in every part? Here's the answer, no. You don't. If you aren't aware of it, let me tell it to you. You do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You have not kept the law in every regard your whole life. And you cannot. Well, all I need to do is walk away from this world and walk toward Jesus. I can do that. No, you can't. You can't. It's impossible. If you think the grace of God is given to those who do what is in them, and doing what is in them is actually ginning up saving faith and walking away from love of the world, then you're without hope. It is impossible for man to do any of this. Jesus says that. Look at Luke 18, 27. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. See, what's Jesus saying? You've got it right, disciples. No one can be saved. It's impossible for you to walk away from your sin, your love of this world, to merit eternal life from God. It's impossible. You got it right. You are utterly helpless. You are like those infants Jesus just blessed. Utterly helpless. You are like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You have nothing to offer him. You just need God's grace. The Lord must save you. See, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That is the point of this whole section of Luke. You're a helpless sinner, and God is a gracious Savior. He sent his son Jesus to seek and save the lost. We were groping around in the darkness of rebellion and idolatry, and the Lord intervened and saved us in Christ. So we trust in Christ and Christ alone. And even that trust in Christ is a gracious gift of God. That's something we pat ourselves on the back for. We trust that Christ walked among us as one of us. We trust that Christ kept the law in every regard for us. He paid the penalty of the law on the cross for us. He walked out of the grave conquering Satan's sin and death for us. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to apply all of this to us. He is even now in heaven ever interceding for us while his spirit is in our hearts interceding for us. Do you understand that we sinned? God saved. Our salvation is all of grace from beginning to to end. What do you bring to the table? Nothing. You're an utterly helpless sinner in need of God's saving grace offered to you in Christ and Christ alone. Now with that said, I want to provide five, as the Puritans say, uses for baptism. Five lessons for baptism. I think we can watch a baptism. This is kind of the warning I think we can watch a baptism and say things like, isn't that sweet? It's so encouraging to see people who love the Lord. I'm happy for that person. But Sovereign Grace, I want to exhort you to come to baptism and see a visible sign of God's grace in Christ. First, at every baptism, I want you to say this in your heart. Every baptism, behold our God. Behold our God. 
Baptism declares to you that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel word is omnipotently powerful to save sinners. It is powerful to save even me. Saints, baptism is not, listen, baptism is not me saying to God, I believe and this sacrament shows that I really mean it. Baptism is God saying to me, I really save all those helpless sinners who trust in Christ, and this sacrament shows that I really mean it. Second, I hope at every occasion of baptism we can pray, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Every time a sacrament is given, I'm continually reminded that I'm not just a man, but a man whom God has freely justified. I'm not a good man, but a man to whom God has been gratuitously good. I'm not a man who merits God's love, but a man to whom God has been merciful out of the great love which he has for me. Baptism says to me that God is merciful to sinners, even me. Even me. Now, whether I'm baptized in water before or after I credibly profess faith is not the primary concern. The primary concern is that I believe in the Christ who is promised in the visible word of baptism. Baptism is the visible token of God's gracious salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ. But there is no automatic grace that comes through the water. You must respond to God's promise with faith the pledge of a good conscience, if you're to be saved. Third, when a baptism happens, I want you to hear this. Let God be true and every man a liar. Baptism is a sign and seal of God's loving kindness in giving his son. It is a visible and confirming word that tells of God's promise to save all of his people in his son, Listen, baptism is not a token of our love to God. It's a token of his love to us. It's not a visible sign of our confession of faith to him, but of his word of promise to us. In other words, it's not a sign which we offer to God to help his weak faith believe our word. It is a sign and seal that God offers to us to help our weak faith believe his word. Now, does everyone who receives the sign of baptism externally, in other words, they're baptized, definitely have the internal reality, the saving grace that baptism offers? No, of course not. Has everyone who has ever been baptized into Christ with water also been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit? No, no, Simon Magus was baptized in water upon a credible profession of faith by an apostle, and he did not believe. If every baptized member of the church had a true and lively faith, then there would be no need for warnings about apostasy in the new covenant. Let me say this too. There would be no statement like, they went out from us because they were not really of us. There would be no need for that kind of talk. Because true faith perseveres, wouldn't see apostasy. 
But here comes the objection. It comes all the time. Well, if baptism is a sign and seal of God's promise, and not everyone who receives that sign is saved, then how can God's promise not be faulty? Doesn't that mean God's promise is faulty? Yes, God gave the promises, and God signed and sealed them visibly. Yet someone may be visibly given the promise of God in baptism, and yet never received the promise of God by faith internally in his heart. Friends, that's not new to new covenant sacraments. That's always been the case. A man could have been circumcised. So receiving the sign and seal of the promise of the Christ, receiving a sign and seal of righteousness by faith, a sign and seal of a new and cleansed heart, and yet not have those realities in his heart. But that does not undermine the promise of God. Just because a man or an infant was circumcised, was signed and sealed with the promises of God in the foreskin of his flesh, does not mean he was saved. His parents could hear the covenant promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then they could give the sign and seal of that promise to their infant son, and yet that child might never be saved. He might never possess the promise by faith. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Ishmael, Esau, you know, we keep going. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And this is what I want you to come to every time a baptism happens. Whether that person being baptized ever really grasps the promise by faith or not, the promise is still true. Everyone who trusts the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Let God be true and every man a liar. Fourth, when a baptism happens, this is the part the Baptist won't like, but we still love you. I want you to hear the Lord Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. I do not bring my children because I know they are elect or because I think they are innocent or because I think the waters of baptism automatically infuses some saving grace into them. I bring my children because I know my God loves them and has made promises to me regarding them. The promise is for you and for your children. God will be God to you and to your children in every covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, in the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, God is God to you and to your children. The text of every covenant says that. Yes, they are helpless infants, undeserving of God's grace, without the faith to comprehend God's promise. As Isaac, an eight-day-old child of Abraham, received the sign and seal of righteousness by faith when he was circumcised, a sign and seal of God's promise to be his God before he was ever able to receive that by faith, so we bring our helpless children to God. We do not bring them because of what we believe about the child. 
We bring them because of what we believe about our Lord. We believe he's merciful to helpless sinners. And this makes the children such a glorious picture of God's grace. We bring our children to receive God's blessing. We bring them as parents who believe God's promise to us and our children. We bring them as an object lesson that to such helpless sinners as these belongs the kingdom of God. And may we receive the kingdom like them, as helpless sinners. I do not intend to lay out my whole case again for baptism. I spent six weeks on this and then an additional one on the mode of baptism. I encourage you to listen to that series if you have not. But I do want to say this. As we have said to our members again and again, if you do not agree with us, we think no less of you. Nor do we discount your membership here in our church one iota. We love you. I can say this with all sincerity. We love you and hope to walk alongside you the rest of your lives. As long as the Lord gives us breath. You remain as welcome here as you ever have been. We hope you will humbly and openly, if you will, consider the biblical case for our position. And we ask you to be patient and kind and peaceable. But we do not require you to agree with us in order to remain with us. Finally, the fifth word I want you to hear when we baptize folks. Fifth word. As those who've died with Christ, let us walk in newness of life. Yes, the gospel is the good news of free and superabounding grace in Christ for sinners. Grace greater than all my sin. But because grace superabounds does not mean that we should continue in sin. In fact, it is because grace superabounds that all those united to Christ by faith will not continue in sin. Sovereign grace, we must not put Christ to the test as Israel did after her baptism. You remember Israel, the whole nation, a whole million of them or so, went through the Red Sea. It's called a baptism. All of them, infants through adults, went through the baptism of Moses, and we get a warning. That's an example for us. It's a tupos, it's a type of what was to come in the baptism of Christ. And it's an example for us that we heed the warning that they heard, do not be like them who after their baptism, they walked in sin in the wilderness and so died there. They were all baptized in the Red Sea, but they were not all saved. Many fell in the wilderness as they awaited their inheritance in the promised land. And as we walk as sojourners in this world, having been baptized into Christ, our Red Sea, saved from the tyranny of Pharaoh, who is the devil, may we not treat grace as a license to sin. But rather, may we with grateful hearts walk worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. May the Lord bless us in this way. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the grace that we've been shown in Christ. A grace that's been given to utterly helpless sinners. A grace that we've received through faith. A grace that is from beginning to end your gift to us in your Son and by the Spirit. We are thankful. May we be people 
who every time we approach a sacrament, whether baptism or the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that our gracious God has given us a visible sign to strengthen our weak faith, that you are the God who makes promises to save us, and you are the God who keeps them. May we be in awe of your tremendous grace toward us, superabounding grace that we have in Christ. May we continue to cast ourselves upon Christ to beat our breast and say, God, have mercy on us, sinners. And may we know that Christ is a great Savior. Give thanks for him and be pleased to walk with him. In Jesus' name, amen.